For Arizona Public Media, this is a special edition of Arizona Spotlight. I'm Zach Ziegler, AZPM's wildfire reporter, in for Mark McLemore. The busiest part of Arizona's fire season has come to a close, so this week we're taking a look back on the effects it had on our area. From people to plants, ecology to economics. Coming up, a fire ecologist talks about the role fire plays in the ecosystem. Meet Summerhaven residents who stayed to help fight a fire that endangered their community. Sonoida's fire chief talks about the numerous fires that put his community at risk. And a look at recovery efforts for the most severely burned portion of one of Southern Arizona's Sky Islands. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Joining me in the studio is Donald Falk, a professor at the University of Arizona School of Natural Resources and Environment, and he also has a joint appointment at the Tree Ring Lab. He researches fire history and ecology. Professor Falk, welcome. Happy to be here. Thank you. Let's start with a broad question. Uh, tell me a bit about what kind of fire season it was in the entire region. We're having a very active fire season in Western North America. Many people know there are some very large fires burning up in British Columbia and also parts of Oregon that we don't usually associate with big fires. Down here in Arizona, it was a little more moderated. Let's zoom in now looking at Southern Arizona. There were a couple of notable size fires here getting up towards 50,000 acres and uh, overall it seemed fairly busy. We thought we were going to have a very, very active fire season, and there were a couple of very significant fires, like the fires in the Pinaleños and, and elsewhere. There are also fires burning up on the rim in the Tonto National Forest and elsewhere. So why did that happen? Well, one factor we can point to, of course, is that we had fairly good fuel accumulation coming into the fire season. That's dependent on winter rains and, to some extent, moderate spring conditions, and that created fairly extensive continuous fuel beds across the southwest. If you get those annual perennial plants that uh, tend to sprout more during a nice wet winter, they start to dry out and now they're kindling. Exactly, and especially grasses. The grasses play a really important part in the fire season in the southwest. And part of the reason for that is that although we see huge raging fires on television, most of what's burning in most fires are what are called fine fuels. These are grasses, needles, small branches. It's those fine fuels that combust most easily, and once they get going, they can burn really fast. So we'd had a few years before this where the acreage burned was relatively small. Was this season just kind of catching up on missed time, getting rid of those fuels that had accumulated in those years? Historically, we know from the tree ring record that fires would have been burning every two to three years in most parts of the lower and middle elevation, longer intervals up at high elevation in the spruce fir forest and the mixed conifer forest. But for most of the mountains and the mid-range and even down in the desert valleys, fires would have been happening very, very frequently. When you don't have a fire, the fuels don't simply go away, they persist. Some parts of them decompose, but a lot of that fuel accumulates. And so you do start to throw a lot more fuel onto the landscape. And it's really then waiting for those hot, dry, windy conditions and a source of ignition. And we've talked a lot about this current year, a little bit about the past. 
How about the future? I know you guys do modeling of what we can expect in years to come. We're very interested in what fire regimes are going to look like 10 and 20 and 50 years from now. So to put all these pieces together, we need to use a computer simulation model. And we ask, first of all, what's climate going to be 50 years from now? Well, as we all know, there are many climate futures that are possible depending on how well we regulate our emissions of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. And then we ask, what's fire behavior likely to be under that climate? And what really jumps off the page is the influence of rising temperature. That is the clearest single signal that's likely to influence fire regimes. And that's partly because with temperature generally comes drier conditions. So you have hot, dry conditions becoming more abundant. Donald Falk is a professor at the University of Arizona School of Natural Resources and Environment and holds a joint appointment at the U of A Tree Ring Center. He researches fire history and ecology. The Borough Fire burned over 27,000 acres east of Tucson in the Catalina Mountains. The fire was reported on a Friday, and by the end of the weekend, residents of the community of Summerhaven were told they had to evacuate. Most left, but a handful stayed. Those who remained were involved in the fight to keep the Borough Fire at bay. Among them was Michael Stanley who runs the Mount Lemmon Water District. I've been here many years, and uh, as soon as I saw the smoke, I said, we're in trouble. Residents asked the team managing the fire for an update, and they obliged with the Sunday afternoon meeting. They said, uh, we're going to tell you when we need to evacuate. But that quickly changed. And that night, they said, we're telling you, you have to evacuate. Crews ordered evacuation because the borough fire was nearing the lone paved road down the mountain, and smoke was starting to drift into the community. As the fire got closer to Summerhaven, Stanley became more and more concerned. It's scary staying here, but, you know, when you start smelling smoke and your alarms go off and, and you're wondering, well, just how close is it? He says fire conditions were reminiscent of 15 years ago when the Bullock Fire burned more than 30,000 acres and nearly entered the town. When I talked with Summerhaven residents about the Borough Fire, this was a common refrain. If they lived on Mount Lemmon before the Bullock, they said the borough experience caused flashbacks to that close call. They also recall the following year when the Aspen Fire destroyed three-quarters of the community. Aspen burned nearly 85,000 acres in 2003. Stanley says the number of customers Mount Lemmon Water had before and after the fire gives an idea of how thorough the destruction was. I had about 425 water services pre-fire, pre-Aspen. I lost 310. Stanley's home was among those that burned in Aspen. I would have never thought, I, I'm water. I have a fire hydrant within 50, 75 foot of my house because of having to be evacuated because of the propane tanks, because of the severity of the fire. It created its own weather. Seeing people that lost everything. Nate Davis is one of the water district's employees. Mike here, Mike, even five years after the fire, he'd say, oh, I got that, hold on. Oh, wait, that burned up. Davis recalls coming back up the mountain. We had a shared driveway, and when we first came back up, could see that the neighbor's cabin was burned. The neighbor's house was visible from the road, but his wasn't. We just assumed it was gone because the neighbors were gone, and then come around the curve, and everything was still standing, untouched, not even scorched. Stanley says the damage done to water department equipment showed just how intense the fire was. It was a complete burn. There wasn't 
the rubber tires, there was no rubber left. The aluminum wheels were melted on vehicles. Davis and Stanley's office today is a reminder that Summerhaven lost more than 300 homes. Mount Lemon Water District is in a building that used to be a single-room schoolhouse. A playground that was installed not long before Aspen is still out back, barely touched for 14 years. They had 12 or 14 in this school, and this was kindergarten to sixth. When the water district moved into the schoolhouse a few years later, Stanley saw evidence of just how quickly the evacuation was ordered during the Aspen fire. Everything was there. The paperwork they were working on, the math problems were all there. And so you go in and it's kind of like going into the twilight zone. You know, it was just, it was like somebody had just walked out that minute. Only one of those students had a home after Aspen, and many families left because the fire also destroyed the jobs that supported them. Our economic base was gone. I was very fortunate to come back and go, wow, I still have a job. Not only that, I've got a bigger job now. Most people lost everything, lost their jobs, lost their livelihood, and lost the forest. Stanley says the community is recovering from Aspen. The water district is now back up to more than 300 customers, but it's taking longer than expected. We would have thought, okay, uh, five years, maybe 10, we'll be back. And, you know, I pity the people that are in the hurricanes and tornadoes because it's not like that at all. It takes years, years, decades. Stanley is among those who took a long time to rebuild. We leave his office and head to his home, which he says was finished not too long ago. It's on the north slope of Mount Lemon, and on a clear day, you can see all the way to the Superstition Mountains east of Phoenix. Stanley's wife, Carol Neha, and their dog, Maddie, Hi, Maddie. greet us at the stairs, heading down to the front door. Hi. Oh, yeah, you're a friend right away. Right away. So right yeah, away. Like <laughs> An elderly woman who lost her home in the Aspen fire previously owned the land. Niehoff recalls seeing the old owner post-evacuation. And But after the fire, she was there sweeping the steps, if you can imagine, oh, wow. at 85. No, no house left. She says she thinks the close call of the Bullock fire in 2002 made Summerhaven homeowners complacent when the Aspen came a year later. And it was a little like crying wolf because the second time we said, oh, we've been through this. Though she thinks Summerhaven did gain something from the Aspen fire. We came together as a community. Before that, I, I think that most of the people had their lives in Tucson and then would bring their party up here and we became more like a family. Stanley and Niehoff are preparing for an event at their house that shows that new sense of community. We call it a freeze-off. So we have homemade ice cream. I think there's gonna be like 30 or 40, maybe 50 people that are gonna bring ice cream and uh, potluck Mexican food. Fellow community member Jeannie Meyer stopped by to help with the prep. She came to Summerhaven as a full-time firefighter 21 years ago and has stayed ever since. We sat on the couple's back porch where a pair of hummingbird feeders had brought quite a flock, causing as much of a ruckus as the small birds can make. I was actually afraid that it was going to come and get us, but it had a lot of potential. She hopes this close call is different and motivates people to get fire wise. But it's also easy to get complacent and... I think this was a wake-up call, and I really hope that as a community we do this together and 
we're a little more prepared. Niehoff would be more than happy to see locals make the town more fire safe, because in this evacuation, just like the others before it, she headed down the mountain while her husband remained. We texted when it was available. There was only one point where we didn't have any communication, and I was concerned because he does a lot of work on his own and has been known to slip down a hillside. <laughs> and so, Stanley says keeping in touch with his wife can lead to some tough conversations. It's very tenuous how you deal with phone calls and saying, well, it's safe, I can see the fire, but it's still pretty far away. The push for fire safety is also changing some of the surroundings around Summerhaven. It's just another way that, as Stanley says, fire has changed the community in the past 15 years. It's different now. It's not like changing something and making it a lot better fast. It is a lot better, but it just takes a lot more time. I asked him if watching Summerhaven rebuild is at all like watching the forest that surrounds it reestablish, and he liked the analogy. It's kind of like, yeah, the, the small stuff starts growing right away, uh, and then it, it starts getting bigger and bigger and better and better. I'm Zach Ziegler, in for Mark McLemore. This was an active fire season in the area around Sonoida. Numerous fires moved through the area, keeping the Sonoida Elgin Fire District busy. I traveled to the community to interview Fire Chief Joe DeWolf. I started by asking him to give me a rundown of the fires that moved through his district during the spring and summer. The largest fires that hit, of course, was the sawmill fire, which started in April. Um, then we went into the Kellogg, the Smith Fire, the Mustang Fire, and those were all large fires, and then we had the Encino Fire. We had a bunch of other smaller fires. We did, did about 58 fires within our response area this summer, all ranging from roadside of 500 acres on up into the 47,000 of the sawmill. There were three main fires, at least, that I was acquainted with as far as uh, threats to structures, threats to uh people's private property, all came in a pretty short amount of time, it seemed. Was it a tense couple of months? It, it was really intense. Um, from April until we got our first rains, the fires came, like you say, the sawmill. They threatened structures right off the bat. The Kellogg and the Encino fires were the other fires that threatened structures right away. 22 years here at the fire department, and this is the first time that the Sonoida property, where a lot of our residents are, have been threatened so bad in one fire season. The sawmill was the one that garnered the most attention. Tell me about that fire. It, it didn't start near here, did it? it? It started on the other side of the mountains in the Green Valley area and then came over that Sunday evening. By Monday morning, we were fully involved with it. Um, so we spent the next almost 48 hours bumping fire around it as well as once the fire has gone through is um, going up and cleaning up after them because that's when a lot of the stuff goes down. Um, wood piles packed up to houses. Some eaves may have caught fire, but you don't notice it right away. So our crews were back in there um, looking for things like that. With the Encino fire, how, how do you go about spreading word 
that it's time to evacuate or that it might be time to evacuate soon, getting the word out to people to ensure that they stay safe. As rural as we are, that is very difficult to do. Um, some of our driveways are three quarters of a mile long. Um, it's hard to get to all those people and get get them out in time. And our sheriff's department is in Nogales. So to get a sheriff from Nogales to Sonoida to help us with the evacuations is a challenge. So we do as best as we can as a fire department. We use Border Patrol. We use the Forest Service BLM. Um, and they help us evacuate as, as we're moving along with the fire. With Encino and Kellogg, they both started right in this general area. What's it like uh, overseeing those fires? I mean, does it feel like a wildland fire? Or does it feel more like a structure fire? Well, it's a combination of, of the both of them. When you have it start in the urban interface, the wildland area, and it starts around homes, not only are you trying to push out grass fires, you're also now having to protect homes. In the Encino fire, when I and I was one of the first ones on scene with my crews, we automatically had structures that were on fire. So right at the beginning, we were doing structure protection and structure suppression, which didn't have the resources and able to get on the fire and be able to suppress it or pinch it off because we were lagging back to take care of the structures and keep those standing. That is our priority. When you have land where it becomes hard to notice that there was a fire there, is it hard to keep the message going year-round of, keeping the community fire-wise and ready for next spring? It is hard. And one of the things that Sonoida has that is not out in the rest of the state or the rest of the nation is we have our grasslands. And yes, we burnt a lot of grassland this year. However, as you see, it's all back again. You know, so when you do fuels mitigation up in the timber country, you trim up your trees and thin out around your houses. Well, that's good for five, six years. When you mow your grass here, it's only good for one season. Tell me about a bit about where you've got a cruise at right now and, and how that affects things around your office. Well, you know, anytime you go to help your neighbor, it affects your office. There's no fire department, whether it's a federal or, or local jurisdiction, that has enough manpower apparatus to really protect their area. So we all go help each other. And the key is, yes, now it's time to go pay back. So we, we do try to, to reach out and help. Again, the size of your organization depends on how much you can pay back that. We're lucky. Um, we have an awesome volunteer program. We have 46 volunteers and 13 careers. So we have personnel that we can, we can lend out. Joe DeWolf is the chief of the Sonoida Elgin Fire Department. Now that the monsoon has brought the busiest part of Arizona's fire season to a close, some attention turns to the aftermath. In places like Sonoida, grass and shrubs make it hard to see where a fire burned within weeks. But in more severely burnt areas on mountains, there can be long-term problems. The land is void of plants, and the rains that slowed the fires could now erode unprotected soil. That's where burn area emergency response work comes in often referred to as bear. Crews work to keep the soil in place until the native plants can again take root. Bear work is currently taking place on Mount Graham. 
The Fry Fire burned nearly 50,000 acres in the Pinaleño Mountains southwest of Safford. It severely burned nearly 2,000 acres and put canyons and waterways in the mountain range at risk. I traveled there to see the damage and the restoration work firsthand. The first stop, Safford Regional Airport. A single-engine airplane sits near a ground crew and several five-foot-tall bags. The white bags are the, the barley seed, 57,000 pounds of barley seed here. That's my guide, Dean McAllister. He was part of the crew on the Fry Fire and has stuck around to be part of the bear team. And it's all been certified weed-free. When it gets deposited on the landscape, hopefully it does not have any noxious weeds with it. The quick-sprouting barley is also sterile, meaning it won't last more than one life cycle. It'll take hold in a few days, faster than native plants would, and die off within weeks. Once the short-lived grass dies, barley will be a thing of the past on Mount Graham. With the weather coming in this weekend, we're hoping that it will be a light, gentle rain rather than a hard, fleshy rain, because we need to get it wetted down into the soil. The plane is loaded with fuel and seed takes off on the first of many runs it will make to Mount Graham. We too will leave the airport to see some of the area where the pilot is headed. The first stop is a spot where we can see the downhill effects of the fire. Construction crews are working on a picnic area and one-lane bridge built by the Civilian Conservation Corps over Wet Canyon. This whole area had picnic tables and it was, it was a very popular recreation site and we initially closed it because we were afraid of a big flood coming through. Those familiar with the area would be hard-pressed to recognize it. Any resemblance between this and the natural you know, canyon that was here three weeks ago is, is gone. Three large storms have pushed through the area since the fire, depositing several feet of soil and debris from the burned mountaintops above. Clearing that debris has brought crews here this day. What they're trying to do is reshape and get the water back into the canyon so it's running in more of a natural course. To make that happen, the 80-year-old bridge built by men who were part of public works relief crews during the Great Depression must go. The bridge has not been in use since a modern two-lane bridge was built, and if the old bridge were to wash away, as it nearly did, it would destroy the new one. Most evidence of CCC work will be gone from here shortly. The picnic tables were washed away in a flood. The bridge is being removed one rock at a time. But there are a couple of items that will be left behind. There were some commemorative plaques that were mounted on this wall that talked about the, the construction of the bridge and the era in which it was constructed. And amazingly enough, we found those plaques intact. We climb back into McAllister's SUV and continue along the dirt road, eventually reaching another water crossing. This is Grant Creek. This goes all the way from, from here all the way down to Fort Grant. Fort Grant was founded as a military base in the 1860s. The Army abandoned the site at the turn of the 20th century, and it became a state prison in 1973. An inmate crew from the prison worked the fry fire, fighting, and then rebuilding efforts. Water for the fort-turned-prison used to come from the creek, but now comes from ground wells, which is good because debris has dammed the creek. A non-inmate construction crew is hard at work clearing the culverts that go under the road here. McAllister says if there had been one more storm in the mountains, this road would most likely be gone. I had an uh, individual up here two weekends ago, and, and he was saying, what's the plink, plink? 
and it was the road washing way, one rock at a time, <laughs> hitting the culvert. <laughs> we pass into a portion of the severely burned area and reach the end of the road at Webb Peak. Trees are all black sticks with no leaves, and the ground is all dark colored dirt or charred rock. The particular area of the fire is, is one of the larger blocks of country where we had really hot fire. All the trees are burned uh, beyond the point of survival. The ground cover is gone. Webb Peak is home to a fire lookout that was built by the CCC in the 1930s. The steel structure still stands, but everything else is gone. The lookout sits well above the timber line, so it kind of gives you an idea of probably how high the flame lanes were when it came through here. Uh, it was enough to ignite the floor of the lookout, burn the floor of the lookout out, break all the glass. Pieces of window now lie more than 20 feet from the structure. The tool lookouts would use to pinpoint a fire is twisted and burnt on the ground at the base of the tower. The conditions here cause problems that roll downhill. These hot burn soils are hydrophobic and so they don't tend to absorb moisture. Instead, the rain heads down, taking soil, rocks, and boulders with it. The barley seed will help slow these issues until native plants can re-inhabit the area. Shrubs and grass will be back quickly, but not the trees. Unfortunately, you're probably looking about 100 years before you'll see this again. I mean, it, it, it will reestablish itself. There is seed in the, in the, the soil bed that, that will germinate. As we stand on the peak, McAllister spots a distinct line on a nearby mountaintop. That's a fire line that you see over there on the ridge. Oh, that, yeah. That's a yeah. line somebody built trying to keep the fire from going over someplace. Yeah. Didn't, didn't succeed. <laughs> yeah. The fire line is a sign of a point when fire crews were trying to manage this fire for the benefit to the mountain, clearing out pine needles and underbrush. But uh, eventually we got far enough into the summer that I uh, imagine fuel moistures dropped down to a, to a low enough point that they weren't able to do that. A monsoon is rolling in, so we leave the charred mountaintop, making one last stop at Peter's Flat before heading all the way back down. This meadow is named after a Scottish-born logger who grew potatoes up here. It was one of three patches he maintained in the meadows on the mountain. This area was burnt badly. A drainage that runs through the meadow cut down to bedrock. It left tall banks that are starting to collapse into the river. This will recover. The banks will fold in and it'll heal itself. This area is returning to normal about two months after burning. The ferns coming in under the dead trees up there, this area will be pretty stable. The spot shows that it won't take long for the mountain to start to reclaim the land, though the process will be slow. It's a reminder of the seasonal nature and the place that fire has in the region's landscapes. In his book, The Southwest, A Fire Survey, fire historian Stephen Pine leads off with the sentence, The Southwest is built to burn. I interviewed Pine earlier this year, and I asked him why some recent years have seen less fire. I think his response says a lot about this season. You know, there's the old saying, it's better to be lucky than good. And right now, I'd like to say we're doing this because we're good and we're getting better, which we are, but fundamentally, I think we've just been lucky. So maybe this spring and summer, some places were just unlucky. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. Production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. 
I'm guest producer and host Zach Ziegler. Mark McLemore returns next week.